As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Pentecost, the experience of the upper room. A talk by Archbishop Julian Porteous at the Immaculata Mission School 2018, held at Jane Franklin Hall in Hobart, Tasmania. Hello, everyone. All those who don't live in Tasmania, welcome to Tasmania. I've only been here four years, but I love the place. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Tonight, um, I want to invite you to come with me to the cynical, to the upper room, to the room where the Lord celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. But I want to to invite you to come with me at a very particular time after the ascension of the Lord, when not only the apostles, but apart from the apostles, there were also quite a number of disciples, and there was also Mary, the mother of Jesus, was present in this room. I want to uh, invite you to come with me and be with them in the upper room in that time after the ascension. As you know, after the Lord rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples on, on a number of occasions, both around Jerusalem, but also in Galilee. But he told them in the end to meet him on the hill, the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, (laughs) which would actually be the last time that he would appear to them following his resurrection. So they met him on the hill, and there they witnessed him rising up ascending to the Father, ascending through the clouds. That was a very decisive moment for them because firstly they'd experienced the Lord's being taken, being horribly treated, being crucified. They'd been shattered by that experience, confused, bewildered. But then there was this discovery on Easter Sunday evening the Lord had risen and it appeared to them. And slowly they had been restored from their bewilderment and confusion and they had these wonderful moments like by the Sea of Galilee when they were out there in the early morning fishing and there he was standing on the shore of the sea. Have you caught anything, friends? You know, John leans over to Peter. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. They had those moments like that, you know, these extraordinary moments when the Lord would just come into their presence, come into their midst and reveal himself to them as the risen one. So they had a number of these experiences. 
But now that was to end. And just imagine them on the hillside watching the Lord ascending up into the clouds. He's gone. And he won't be coming to be with us the way he has been coming and being with us in the recent weeks. One can imagine them feeling like abandoned, feeling, what now? What's going to happen now? They've been through this roller coaster of experiences, of confusions, of, of um, great anguish, of great fear, and then moments of great consolation, great hope, great joy. They've been through this roller coaster of experiences and emotions, but now they're entering a new phase. No longer will the Lord be coming and suddenly, wonderfully appearing in their midst, being there amongst them. So we can imagine them walking down the Mount of Olives back towards Jerusalem. What now? What's ahead? What's going to happen? Now, there's one thing that he told them, well, actually two things he mentioned in particular. The initial thing that uh, guided them was that he said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait till you're clothed with power from on high. So they went back to Jerusalem they went back to the room where they'd been with Jesus at Last Supper. They'd been back to that same room where Jesus had appeared to them on Easter Sunday evening. They'd been back to that same room where they'd been huddled together at different times, getting consolation and encouragement from one another in the midst of their bewilderment and uncertainty as to what's going on, what it all means. So they went back, as the Lord said, back to the upper room. But another thing that happened on the mountain, he said to them, I want you to go out to the whole world, to the whole world, proclaim the gospel to all creatures, baptise them, then in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all I've commanded you. So those words were ringing, no doubt, in their, in their ears as they went down from the mountain. How can we do this? The Lord's asking far too much of us. They couldn't imagine in any way go to the whole world, not just to Jerusalem, not just among some of their friends, not just in their immediate environment, the whole world, to every culture. How could they possibly do that? So they were having that great call and the Lord kind of giving them this instruction, this is what you are now to do. And they're thinking, how? How can we do this? So imagine them coming down the mountain. And then, let's we can imagine them, if we were one of them, how would we feel? I mean, it's a hostile world out there. They'd seen what the Jewish authorities had done to Jesus. They'd seen the anger in the crowds. They'd seen him being belittled and humiliated. They'd seen the anger against him 
as he was so horribly crucified. They'd seen this viciousness towards Jesus. How, how could they cope with that? And they, they knew too that, that uh, their own country was under the control of the Romans and the Romans were ruthless. They would have felt so insecure, so overwhelmed by the reality of the world that they knew around them. And yet the Lord was saying, I want you to go out to the whole world, proclaim the gospel to all creatures. So imagine them going back to Jerusalem and thinking, how do we do this? It's kind of impossible. The Lord's asking far too much of us. And then they must have been thinking too about what the Lord had said about to wait till you are clothed with power from on high. What, what's the Lord talking about there? Clothed with power from on high. What's that mean? So imagine we're in the upper room now. I said about 70. We're kind of together tonight. Just try and sense what must have been going on. I think one of the things that would have been that the, the room would have been kind of hushed and quiet. Nobody was saying a whole lot. Sometimes there might be quiet little conversations. What do you think about this? What do you think it means? What's going on? But there would have been this kind of uncertainty in the room where nobody was... Nobody was game to really say anything. Nobody was game to, to step forward and say, right, this is what's going on, this is what we've got to do, because nobody really knew and nobody was confident enough to have any sense of what the future lay in store for them and where things were going to go from here. And so you can imagine them in the room being confused and the conversations being very tentative, being very uncertain, and they're there occasionally speculating about this or about that. But generally speaking, there was a kind of a quiet over the room. But there was one person among them who seemed to have an extraordinary influence. It was Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was there. Somehow when they were really confused and uncertain, she just seemed to have a, a calm peace about her. And if they're kind of questioning and trying to sort things out and trying to understand what's going on, she just seemed to be there, quiet, peaceful, but having a sense and they, they, they sensed this in her. She had a sense everything's going to be all right. She had a sense that things will work out. And as they looked to Mary, they, they felt she somehow was the only person in the room who was really together, the only person in the room who really had some kind of sense 
that this is all under the ultimate direction and guidance of God and all will in the end be okay. And Esther noticed that she would be very prayerful and reflective and there was a, there was a peace on her face that kind of was a reassurance. And they would sense her every now and again as she'd be sitting there, she'd just kind of move into prayer. She'd just kind of like a contemplative prayer. This, she would just be uniting herself with God in prayer. And, and, and this kind of drew them to that same idea that yeah, we should be doing the same thing, not just caught up in our own emotions and fears and anxieties and uncertainty, not just allowing all, these, all this sort of stuff to dominate me, but, but as I saw Mary being a witness to quiet focus on God, they too were drawn and, and, and began to pray and we're told that they prayed together. They started to pray. Then in the midst of their doubts and confusions, they were being drawn into a prayer and they started to turn their fears and their anxieties, their uncertainties towards God and kind of opening themselves up to him. So Mary became that instrument of enabling them to, to move beyond their fears and start to pray. And as they were praying, maybe they began to think about the last three years or so of their lives, what had happened. As they were there, I mean, remember back their first meeting with Jesus, perhaps, their, their time by the Sea of Galilee, if they were some of the first disciples. Maybe they started to think about some of the extraordinary and wonderful moments they had with Jesus. Thinking of them sitting in the crowds on the hillside and listening and just being captivated by what Jesus was saying, just feeling their own hearts being stirred by the words he said and knowing the, the, the deep and profound truth that Jesus was revealing in his words, knowing that Jesus was speaking deep into their lives in a way that nobody else had ever done before and they were hearing words from him that somehow just resonated so powerfully with them that they were caught up with Jesus and, and, and were drawn deeper and deeper in their union with him. And at times too, they would think about those moments where they'd be by Jesus, with Jesus by themselves and he would be patiently instructing them, guiding them, correcting them, speaking to them about how they can grow and mature as his disciples. And they believed in him. They knew that he had the words of eternal life. They knew that what he was saying about this, was, this is the path of life. This is the way to salvation. This, this revelation of who God is and what God wants to do in their lives was so wonderful and they were being drawn more and more into it and wanted to embrace and live it. Even though they knew they, they failed often, they misunderstood things, they fell short, but 
but they thought of all those extraordinary moments with Jesus, the conversations they had with him, the words that came from his lips. And maybe too they were thinking about some of the extraordinary things they saw. Remember when they were out on the boat at night and there were waves, the wind came up and the waves were breaking over the boat and then suddenly Jesus comes walking across the water and he just calmed the, the storm. Or think about that occasion that the crowds just got so immense that Jesus, we've got to feed these people. And he just took the loaves and some fishes and fed these thousands of people. Well, seeing a leper cleansed, a blind man suddenly able to see, the paralysed rising and walking, they'd seen extraordinary things. They'd seen God working in and through Jesus the most extraordinary way. So the Perhaps as they were praying and reflecting and thinking about things, they went back and remembered all these things that they'd, they'd seen and the things that had captivated their hearts and their lives and drawn them into wanting to be disciples and wanting to follow and say, we, we, we know that he is the one, he's the Messiah, he's the one sent by the Father. We know that he is the one who will lead us through this life and lead us to eternal life. And all we want to be is with him and follow him and live by his teaching. So they look back on their past, but now there was this uncertainty. How can this continue to happen? How can we continue on this, this path now? Because he's no longer here. He's ascended to the Father. Clothed with power from on high. Will we, we somehow be given the same powers that Jesus Will we be able to raise the dead? Will we be able to heal the sick? Will we be able to do those things? Is that the power that Jesus is speaking about? What, what is this power from on high? But they also knew that Jesus had said, particularly the Last Supper, he said on a couple of occasions in the Last Supper, he said, look, I have to go. Because unless I go, you cannot receive the Holy Spirit. That didn't make a lot of sense when he said that at the Last Supper. They didn't really see any need for the Holy Spirit because they got Jesus with them. As long as Jesus was there, as long as they were able to walk with him, as long as they were able to, to listen to his voice, as long as they were able to receive guidance and instruction from him, they were right. They didn't need any, any other advocate. They didn't need anybody else to help them. But of course now I think we do need somebody. We do need, do need help. And so he's spoken a couple of times about the fact that the Father would send the Holy Spirit. But that was still difficult to grasp for them. What, what does that actually mean? And probably when they looked around the room, looked at each other. I think we're such ordinary people. You know, we're, um, we're nothing special. 
I look around, there's, there's nobody who's really particularly gifted or there's probably nobody who's really holy. There are only real natural leaders. There are some of those elements there, but they couldn't see anybody if they looked around the room to say, well, somebody's going to be able to um, take us forward out of this or, or stand up and say, brothers, this is the way we've got to go, this is what we've got to do. You know? And they looked around at each other and, and they also were thinking about what happened when Jesus was captured and taken in the garden. Very shamefully they thought how they were overcome with fear and they ran away and they hid and they were embarrassed and didn't want to know him. After all they'd seen and done, all they'd been through with him, at that moment they had kind of, all that confidence evaporated and they, they just abandoned the Lord. So who are we? We're so weak. Our faith is so fragile. You know, they looked around the room and sort of said, well, how can anything happen out of this? How can anything happen out of this? And so they were gathered for some days in the upper room together with all these kind of things happening amongst them. Then the feast, the Jewish feast of Pentecost came around. Pentecost means 50 days, 50 days after the Passover. And the day began like the days before, I'm sure. Together in the room. This swirl of experiences, reflections and prayer and, and, and searching and bewilderment, all these kind of swirling experiences still, still very much in their minds and hearts, but they were there together in the room. There was a gush of wind flow through the room suddenly and something happened. Something started to happen in each one of them. Something stirred in their hearts. Something touched the very depths of their being. Something moved within them that was strange but beautiful. They, they felt that, that somehow this, this, this rush of wind was something that kind of went in the very depths of their being, went to the depths of their souls and, and something was happening inside them. It was really hard to understand. When they looked around, they realised it just wasn't me who was experiencing this, but everybody else in the room was experiencing the same thing. Something was actually happening to all of them. And they were caught up in this, what's, what's going on? What's happening? And they, they knew that, that something was being transformed within them. It's like a, their soul was being set alight of fire. Their, their soul was suddenly light. Suddenly they, they found the confusion started to dissipate. The uncertainty started to vanish. They suddenly found themselves with joy, with a new sense of hope and purpose and confidence. And their spirits just seemed to have got suddenly all the deadness and the heaviness and the burden that was on their spirits just lifted. And great smiles came on their faces. 
And they look at each other with amazement, so not saying anything, but kind of saying, is what happening to me happening to you? And they knew it was. Somehow, something extraordinary was happening to them all at the same time. And there was this kind of surge of emotion and there was this kind of extraordinary joy. They were just filled with joy. And, of course, when you're filled with joy, you don't find yourself sitting quietly, as they'd been doing for these last days, sitting in these hushed tones, speaking quietly, speaking kind of with this heaviness of spirit. Suddenly they're up. Suddenly they're, they're kind of talking to each other and they found themselves just moved to praise God. And so they're saying hallelujah. And they can't but do anything else because suddenly this surge within them is so great that they burst forth in the praise of God. This wonderful transformation from the very depths of their being. Suddenly they were completely and totally transformed. Suddenly they were so different from what they'd been only minutes before. And they knew that something was happening to them and this was of God. This was not something coming from themselves. This was not just something manufactured. This was actually something where God was active in their midst. Some of them started to speak in foreign languages. Strange, but they were just filled with a joy that just bubbled over into these words they'd never heard before. Suddenly people started to make prophetic utterances, saying things about what God wants to say to them, wants to reveal to them, and they're hearing these extraordinary statements of faith, of confidence, of hope, of purpose. Suddenly they find themselves speaking forth with great confident faith about God and the things of God and about what God wants to do. And, of course, there's this kind of exultant excitement in the room and they're all talking loud and to each other and they're all praising God. And so the whole place is just erupted. There's a kind of a buzz in the air. So much so... The people walking by on the streets say, what on earth is going on up there? Because what's anything on earth? It was actually something from heaven that was going on in there. But people are going, what is happening in that house? And so the crowd started to gather outside. What is going on? There's pandemonium in this house upstairs. And later on they'd say, these guys are going to be drunk. There's no other explanation for it. Yes, they were intoxicated, but intoxicated by the Spirit of God. Yeah, they were filled with a joy that just burst forth and the crowd started to gather around this house because of the commotion that was happening within the house. God's power to transform the human heart is absolutely real. God's desire to transform the human, the human heart is absolutely real. God wants to breathe his life, his joy, his peace, his love into the hearts of his disciples and that's what happened at Pentecost. And this is something I could never have imagined, never expected. 
And it was pure gift. They knew that they were receiving something which they never imagined could ever possibly happen to them. And there were tongues of fire. Representing the fact that somehow their, their hearts were on fire. Were on fire for God, on fire with the love of God. And there was a fire burning in their hearts that just wasn't some passing emotion, just wasn't some kind of thrill of experience. There was somehow a fire like the burning bush that just wouldn't go out. There was this fire that gave them new courage and purpose and confidence. There was a fire that somehow so encapsulated their hearts that they just had to do stuff. There was no longer any question of sitting back wondering what to do or wondering what will be my future. Somehow you just go with what's happening to you because you know it's good and you know what God is doing is wonderful and powerful and he will open up all the ways forward for you. The power of the Holy Spirit was driving them forward. So what does Peter do? The impetuous one, he immediately goes out because they used to lock the door all the time before because they were frightened, the Jewish people coming and grabbing them. Now Peter goes up and opens up the door and this large crowd saying, what is going on in this, in this room, standing outside? People's, people's, uh, Peter goes out and says, people of Jerusalem, I want to tell you about this Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified. So all those terrible things you did to him, I want to tell you that he has risen from the dead. I want to tell you that he is Lord and Christ. This was the first great proclamation of the Christian gospel. This was the first time that the gospel was announced to say Jesus Christ died and rose again. Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world. Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Jesus Christ is the one who can save you from your sins. Jesus Christ is the one who will lead you into eternal life with God in heaven. He just said it. He didn't care what they thought. He didn't try to you know, make it acceptable or nice or, or attractive. He just said it as it was. He said it, though, with a conviction which was born of the spirit that had been ignited in his heart. He spoke forth those words, not just the words of Peter, not just what Peter had come to understand. He spoke words because the Holy Spirit was giving him the words to speak. He was speaking forth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and can speak with such confidence and clarity that people were absolutely stunned. So much so that at the end of his words, they just stood there and say, brothers, what should we do? How can we respond to this? And Peter knew because Jesus told them on the mountain, well, you've got to be baptised. And the church began. So Pentecost. Well, what happened at Pentecost? I just described what happened. But what happened? I think a very important thing happened at Pentecost. That these disciples who were at that moment 
captured by their fear, paralysed by their uncertainty. Those, those disciples who were confused by everything that happened to them, who found themselves caught up and driven by their emotions, who tried to speculate and understand what's going on and found that their minds and their emotions were unable to respond to the reality of what had happened in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the Christian faith is not about emotions, not about having highs. The Christian faith, too, is not just about knowing certain truths. The wonderful thing about being a Christian is the fact that God pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit who transforms us, who ignites our, our hearts with faith. The wonderful thing about the, Holy, about, the, about the Christian life is it's all about what God does in us and not what we do for God. It's all about the wonderful things that God wants to do to transform our lives. It's all about the way God has a plan to do wonderful and extraordinary things, transforming us from within. Now, it has a word. Christianity, in the end, is about grace. It's about a gift that God gives us, a gracious gift that God gives us. That as we come to believe in his son, the father rejoices to see us moving towards his son and says, I'm going to breathe the gift of the Holy Spirit into your heart so that you will be transformed and rise and be raised up as my sons and daughters. Coming to, to faith in my son is actually the way in which I'm able then to release the grace of the Holy Spirit in your heart to transform your life. And your life from there on in will be a life lived under grace. So that's why people like St Paul would say in Ephesians, he says, it is by grace that you are saved through faith. So if you have faith, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you come to Jesus Christ, then God will release the grace of salvation in your life and he will transform you and you will enter into a process by which you are being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and prepared for final glorification with the saints in heaven. This is a wonder, the beauty, the power of the Christian life. It is a life of grace. One of the other people I really like in this regard is uh, St. Augustine. He's called the Doctor of Grace. And uh, when his bishop, there was this priest in Rome called Pelagius. And Pelagius was teaching that, uh, you know, the way to, to, to be a Christian is to, uh, to dedicate yourself and to work hard and to do the right thing and, and also to get further instruction and teaching so you know how to live the Christian life. And Augustine was hearing all this stuff going on by this priest in Rome. He said, no, that man doesn't understand at all. It's, it's not about what we do to be Christian. It's what God does in us. Because he'd been searching all, the, all those years, he'd been exploring all sorts of different religions, he'd been looking at all sorts of things, but it was only when one day he was sitting down in his, in his house in, in Milan and, uh, 
and there was a Bible there because he'd been toying with the idea of Christianity. He'd been really influenced by St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, and, but he couldn't quite get it all together. And he just heard this voice say, take up and read. And he opened St. Paul's letter to the Romans and began to read it. And suddenly all the searching, all the, all the inquiry, all the different avenues of trying to understand, suddenly all came to clarity with him. And he knew that that moment that the scriptures had spoken to his heart and he was converted. So he, he knew that it is God who had been leading him and, and waiting for that moment when he could speak to his heart and affect his conversion. So St. Augustine understood that the life of the Christian is a life of grace. My brothers and sisters, I think the most important thing, I believe, for each of us as Christians, each of us who want to follow Jesus Christ, who want to live your faith within the Catholic Church, I think the most important thing is we open ourselves to the power of God's Holy Spirit and have no doubt that God wants to release the power of the Holy Spirit in our life in wonderful ways. It's a gift. And all we can do is put our hands out to receive it. Because it's a gift. We can't make it happen. But we can dispose ourselves to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember the words that Jesus spoke about giving gifts. What father among you would hand his son a stone when he asks for bread or hand him a scorpion instead of a fish? And he says, well, how much more does my father in heaven want to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Father longs for you to have the very life of God himself strong and active in your life. He wants you to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit, to live your life by the grace of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to finish just with an image that I found helpful. <clears throat> when I was younger, many, 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 many years ago, uh, <clears throat> I used to own a surf ski. I used to love surf skiing. And uh, <clears throat> as a young priest, I used to go surfing and using a surf ski. But I learned, I learned some valuable lessons from learning from riding a surf ski. First thing is, <clears throat> the power to propel the surf ski is the wave. It's tied up in the wave. However, the key thing you have to do is orient yourself, line yourself up, and then sometimes you've got to work a bit, bit hard to get going. And then when the wave captures you and takes you forward, you then have to use your weight and use your, your paddle to stay in the wave. In the early days, if you, didn't, if you, if you went, you went straight with the wave, you just go like that and the whole thing you go over and you go backwards <laughs> under, under, the, under the wave. So you learn to ride the wave down the, down, down the face of the wave. Similarly with the canoeists. You know, canoeing is very popular in Tasmania. When, you, when you're going, the, 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 the stream is the power. 
all you got to do is stay in the stream. So all you got to do is actually use your weight. You see a rock coming up. You're not going to just sail into the rock. You're going to go around the rock and, and stay with the stream. The Christian life is to live in the stream of grace. And all we need to do is learn how to ride the wave of grace. All we need to do is learn how to stay in that stream of grace that is flowing through our lives. And it's a great journey. It's a wonderful, exhilarating experience to live the life in the Holy Spirit, to live under the grace and influence of the Holy Spirit. So tonight... We're in the upper room, the cynical. And maybe we're like the disciples. A bit of fear in our lives, a bit of confusion, a bit of uncertainty. Maybe we're struggling with issues. And God wants to give each of us the gift of the Holy Spirit. All we've got to do is firstly... Say, I want to follow Jesus all my life. And the Father will look down and say, well, I want to give you the Holy Spirit to do that. So tonight is the night to seek and receive the beauty, the wonder, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was Archbishop Julian Porteous with Pentecost, the experience of the upper room. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.